And once you find Acts chapter 4, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Today we're reading uh, verses 23 to 31. So 23 to 31. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it aloud, and you can look at the screen as well or in your Bible. This is what the Lord says to us. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Christ. For truly in this day, They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Lord, we come to you, the sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We turn our eyes to you and away from ourselves right now, and we want to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, this is the one moment in the week when together your people are gathered to hear You say something to us. And so we want to press in to listen to you. We want to hear you. We want to hear you. We want to respond to you. We want want to be changed by you. We want your word to change us, Lord, as we study it. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would help us. Help me to, to, to do my best to unpack this passage Help all of us to do our best to understand and apply this passage. And please change us. And please make us a church like this early church that knows how to pray. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being seated. Our subject of study this morning is prayer that God is pleased to answer. Prayer God is pleased to answer. Some years ago, a couple in their 60s departed from the Rocky Mount Wilson Airport in their single-engine aircraft 
headed for Georgia. While in flight, Ed, the husband, suddenly collapsed over the controls of his plane and became unconscious. Janice, Ed's wife, of course, became frantic because she was not a licensed pilot and she did not know how to fly the plane. She took over the controls and somehow managed to keep the plane in flight for over an hour. Just as the plane was crossing over the North Carolina, South Carolina border, she was able finally to radio to the authorities for help. And they, she cried out, help, help, help. Would someone please help me? My pilot uh, is unconscious. I don't know how to fly this plane. Would someone please help me? And so the authorities received her distress signal, but they were unable to reach her because Janice kept changing her radio channels. The plane eventually ran out of fuel, but miraculously, Janice was able to crash land her plane in a field. She was able to crawl out of the plane injured and get some help at a farmhouse nearby. In moments of panic, it is easy to become so panicked, so distressed that we don't know what to do and we start acting erratically and irrationally. When faced with conflict, it's, it's human nature, isn't it, to, to sort of move into a, a triage mode and, and explore, try to find every available option, every available source of help. If we get around to it, we might even decide to pray. And if we do decide to pray... So often we're tempted, aren't we? At least I know I am, to see the Lord as a, a sort of one source of help among many sources. And like Janice, we, we, we don't, linger, at, least, at least I, don't linger long enough on the right channel, as it were. And so I explore all available options, hoping to find a way out, or at least find the courage to continue on in this trial. And then... We wonder, don't we, why we feel so alone, so helpless, so without peace and without hope. But then we read a passage like Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. In the face of conflict, this church, this infant church, had only one channel. They had such a high view of God and such a low view of their own resources that when conflict came, when persecution arose, when the death threats began to roll in, they had only one resource. They had only one recourse. And that was to run to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find help in their time of need. They had one channel. Church, how many channels, how many options, how many sources do we have, especially in an increasingly hostile culture, one that is increasingly opposed to the Lord and to his Messiah? We must have only one source, as they did. So they prayed and they 
prayed through, as the old timers used to say. And when they did, God responded. Luke tells us, and when they prayed, verse 31, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. If I could condense this whole message into one sentence, it would be this. When, troubled, when a troubled church is confident in God, he responds to big prayers with his lavish grace. When a troubled church is confident in God, he responds to their big prayers with his lavish grace. Grace City Church, if, if we desire to be a church that sees results like we read here in verse 31, if we desire to be a church that is repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit and courageous to speak for Christ in a culture full of adversity, if we wish to be a church where God's mighty deeds are seen that give testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, then we would do well to learn to pray like this. Now, this prayer is composed of two parts, but let's first remind ourselves of the context of this prayer. Bear in mind that from chapter 3 until verse 31 here, we've been considering really one story, one scene. It all began rather innocently as Peter and John went up to the temple one day for the hour of prayer. And just as they crossed by the beautiful gate, they found there a man who happened to be lame from birth, we are told. The man did as he asked everyone else. He asked for money. Peter and John said, we don't have money, but I will give you what we do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Instantly, the man's legs are restored to wholeness. The man stands, he begins leaping, he begins cheering. Of course, this draws a large crowd. And so what does Peter do? He takes advantage of the situation to begin to preach the forgiveness of sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, as Aaron showed us last week, this preaching draws the attention of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. Verse 2 says that they were greatly annoyed by Peter's preaching. And so they arrest Peter and John. And they won't deny, of course, that a miraculous thing happened, but they will not tolerate preaching in Jesus' name. Remember, as Aaron showed us last week, if the resurrection is true, it would cause the Jewish religious leaders' whole religious system to topple, to crumble. And when you're confronted, you confront people with the truth and they believe some lie, it's going to confront them, and their religious system will start to crumble. And so how you respond is very important. Well, the religious leaders threaten the apostles. Verse 18 tells us that they charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Of course, Peter says, well, whether it's right in the sight of God uh, to, to uh, listen to you rather than God, you need to decide. For us, there's only one. There's no question. Uh, we can't keep quiet about what we have seen and we have heard. And with that, Peter and John are released after being further warned, and we pick up in verse 23 that says, they returned 
to their friends. Now, that word friends is an important word in the original. It literally means their own. They return to their people. They return to their family. They return to their church, their true, place of truest camaraderie. And that's what the church is for the people of God. It's, 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 it's your people, right? And so they report back to their people, their own, what the religious leaders said to them. And in verse 24, uh, it says, Luke tells us that when they heard it, they... Now, I want you to pause there for a second. And when they heard it, they... I wonder how Luke might, res- might fill that sentence out if he were writing about the church today. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. What would Luke say of us How would he end that sentence? What would we have done if we were there? Would he say, and when they heard it, they called for a meeting to strategize about the best way to skirt the authorities. They called a meeting to Figure out how we can speak in a a less offensive way. Maybe we can talk about the Lord without actually using his name. Or, when they heard it, they created a pros and cons list about speaking in Jesus' name to see if the pros outweighed the cons. Or, when they heard it, they suggested that Peter and John take a sabbatical until things blow over a little bit in Jerusalem. How would Luke finish the sentence if he was writing about us? But that's not Luke's description of this early church. Friends, this church has seen God do too much to keep quiet. And so what do they do? When they heard it, they didn't call a planning meeting. They called a prayer meeting. They lifted their voices to God. And they are united. See that word together. They lifted their voices together. Why are they united? Well, friends, the early church was driven by one motivation, and that is the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. It is his work and his death and his resurrection that made them into God's people. And so a threat against the apostles to whom the message was entrusted was a threat against their message and ultimately against their Lord and his church, and this moved them to action. You see, friends, the early church in Jerusalem differed significantly from many local churches today. Church was not about one's personal preferences. Church was not the place that you showed up to simply because it had something to offer you personally. No, sir. This church, this was the church, as we'll see next time, that was of one heart and one soul. There was one heartbeat, one heartbeat, and that was the name and fame of Jesus. And so they devoted themselves together to the apostles' doctrine and the teaching, to living, loving, and liturgy to the worship of God, and they invited everyone around them to stand in awe with them. So when opposition arose, and Peter and John were the ones that were threatened, 
The church saw it as a threat against the entire body. So they prayed. They tuned to the only channel they had, the only resource they had, the sovereign Lord of creation. Again, this is a two-part prayer. I want to cover the two ingredients that God, in the prayer that God is pleased to answer, invocation and supplication. Invocation means calling on the sovereign Lord with his attributes in view before they make their requests. Supplication is making specific requests to God to provide what they need to serve him without fear. First, let's look at invocation. Verse 24 says, the church lifted their voices together. We don't know exactly who was there or who would have been there. These are likely the closer companions of Peter and John. You couldn't fit thousands of believers in any one place in Jerusalem. Uh, The Greek construction of the sentence suggests that there was a single person praying while the rest of the church joined in an agreement, and they invoke the Lord. They address the Lord, and they address him by a rather rare title in the New Testament, Sovereign Lord. In the Greek, it's despotes. It's where we get the English word despot, which we tend to think of as a sort of a harsh ruler or a dictator. But in the New Testament, the word refers to an absolute ruler, a king, a ruler with unchallenged authority. This word is used only a few times in the New Testament. It's used of God the Father a few times. It's used of God the Son a few times, but it's a rare word, and they use it here. Now, why? Why address the Lord in this way? will notice that they don't call out to the Lord using whatever favorite title they're used to calling out to him with. We all have our favorite titles, right? When we call out to God, they address him with a title that speaks directly to their need. Remember the context. The context is opposition. Here you have the Sanhedrin, the highest governing authority in Jerusalem other than the Romans, commanding the church not to speak in Jesus' name. So quite apart from relying on their own wisdom, they turn to the highest authority that there is. They turn to the authority that laughs at earthly authority. They turn to the only authority that in their minds exists. They turn to the sovereign Lord. And long before they even think of asking a request of him, what do they do? They spend some time lingering and thinking and calling to mind who he is and what he has done. And and notice how robust This church's theology, these may be simple men and women, but they have no simple theology. This is no generic God they are invoking. With the threats echoing in their minds from the religious leaders, they cry out to the Lord who is unchallenged in his authority. And first, they pray to the God who is bigger than any enemy. When our kids were little at nighttime they would 
come in, they'd call us into the room and they'd say, Mom, I had a nightmare, or Dad, I had a nightmare, or I saw someone outside the window, or I, I heard some noise in the hallway, or I saw someone in the closet, or whatever it was. And we would say, all right, and we'd turn the light on and we'd sit there and console them and we'd say, all right, now listen, who's bigger than the shadow that you saw? And usually with a tear or whimpering voice, they would say, Jesus. That's right. So let's pray, to, let's pray to the God who's bigger, the God who's bigger than your fears. In verse 24, can you get bigger than the God who created all things? Can you, can you get bigger than the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? This is the God who's bigger than any enemy. In the scriptures, when, when people refer to God as the creator, that's about the highest title you can give him. You know why? Because the creator is someone who stands above the thing that's created. And so the creator of heaven and the earth and the sea always stands above everything that he created to fill them, including our enemies. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament screams aloud his handiwork. His, his creation, friends, from, from the, the majestic blue whale in the sea all the way down to the tiny little polka-dotted ladybug, to the shimmering pine needles and these beautiful longleaf pines that blanket Wilmington. Everywhere you look, there are voices shouting to every man and to the anxious heart that you have been made. You have been made. And you are a creature living in a world that belongs to its creator. So their doctrine of creation affirms divine sovereignty over them and over those who threaten them. And this stirs up their faith because their creator is always greater than the thing created. They have a big God. Theology, friends, do we? The second way they invoke the Lord First, they pray to the God who's bigger than any enemy. Second, they pray to the God whose words are trustworthy. His words are trustworthy. Look at verse 25. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do these people stand against the Lord and his anointed? It's almost a direct quote of the psalm, Psalm 2 we looked at this summer. The church recognizes that it was God speaking through David when David prophesied about the nations, the rulers of the earth, allying themselves together against the Lord, against his, his Christ. What's the church doing here? They're leaning on the doctrine of inspiration. This was a word given by the Lord and preserved for us. This, this speaks to us today. And so they're able to look at Psalm 2 and look at their circumstances, and they're able to say, guys, God said this would happen. 
His word said this would happen. This is no surprise to him. In other words, friends, God's words define their circumstances, not their feelings. Grace City, when we face various threats, and we will, especially to our faith, do we have such confidence in the word of God? Do, do we see in texts like Psalm 2 the trouble that all followers of Jesus will experience to varying degrees, that they're an extension of opposition to our Lord, and therefore it is God's will for us to be persecuted. Friends, listen, if WECT tells us this summer that a Category 5 hurricane is headed toward Wrightsville Beach, we would be the biggest fools on the planet not to prepare. But the sad reality is that too many Christians today are not prepared for the storms of opposition that Christ's followers will face. And when anything remotely alienating happens to us, we're shocked. We can't believe this would happen to me. Why? Because our doctrine so often does not match our difficulty. Our, our theology has a small God in it. Our God is too small, and so our prayers are filled so often mine are filled with requests for deliverance, but from a small God who probably didn't even know this was going to happen in the first place. So God, get me out of this, and I don't even believe it. Church, we need a more robust doctrine of inspiration. That's why I'm so glad these theology groups are happening, but that's not enough. We need to be personally in this book. Do we believe that every word of God is God-breathed, is inspired, and is profitable for teaching, especially in times of opposition? Third, they pray to the God who is sovereign over the course of human history. In your Bible, verse 27, circle the word for. What they're doing is they're unpacking and applying Psalm 2. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, God said it would happen, and guess what? It happened. The people of Israel aligned with foreign nations, the Romans and Herod and Pontius Pilate, and they opposed the Lord and his Christ. Except, they add a little footnote, that's a whole paragraph actually, except the whole time they were plotting their will, God was performing his. Remember we studied the doctrine of providence back in October, if God predestined something to happen, church, he will bring it about in a way that works out his purposes. Not even the worst evil, not even the most horrendous act of violence or hatred or murder or genocide falls outside of his providence. 
I like to linger there because that always makes people feel uncomfortable when preachers start talking that way. Men have their evil intentions and they carry out their evil plans. It's just that God knows how to superintend them to work them for good. And friend, you may never see the good, not this side of heaven, but nothing falls outside of his care. Nothing. Nothing. And oh my, how the cross of Jesus proves this doctrine. Robert Tannehill, the commentator, says, in a time of threat, prayer can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforming the expected result. This rediscovery can keep God's witness faithful in spite of threats. Friends, are you faced with opposition of various kinds? Do you have a theology that is able to hold you up? Do you have a doctrine that can match your difficulty? Friends, we haven't even looked at supplication yet. We haven't looked at requests yet. This is a 134-word prayer in the Greek. I know I counted. 92 words are dedicated to invocation. 42 are dedicated to supplication. In other words, for every four words, three of them are a direct address to God recalling his attributes to a fearful heart. One is request. What does that teach us then? What does their prayer teach us about invocation and prayer, friends? Remember the sermon in a sentence. When a troubled church is confident in God, he responds to their big prayers with his lavish grace. Friends, scripture-saturated invocation stirs up our faith to pray big prayers. And faith is the channel through which God's grace is received and applied in our trials. Listen, Invocation is not flattering some insecure little deity so he'll help us like the Greek gods were, the Roman gods were. Nor is it reminding some absent-minded, forgetful deity of what he said and, you know, challenging God to remember his word. He doesn't need to remember his word. He's not absent-minded. He's not insecure. We are. The church knows that invocation is for the sake of insecure, forgetful people to remember who God is. Don't you, don't you believe for a second that Peter and John weren't terrified by those threats? They're people. They're normal. They're human beings. And so what did they do? They went to God. Bible-rich invocation is theological course correction for the faint of heart. It is, it is faith-giving prayer that brings us nonstop with no layovers to the throne of grace to get help in our time of need. And remembering who God is and the promises that he's made and what he's done, that stirs up our faith so that we can find help when we need it most. And so instead of I this and we that, they pray, you made, you spoke, you anointed, 
you predetermined. Scripture saturated, faith giving invocation enables them now to turn to Him with kingdom minded supplication. That's my second point supplication. Let's see if we can do this in 10 minutes. Doctrine of creation, inspiration, providence. That's their foundation. Feet firmly planted. What do they ask God for? That might be eye-opening again for us to think about this. If, if the sentence began, and now, Lord, and Luke was writing about us, what would our supplication sound like? Would we say, deliver us, Lord, from these bad men? Take them out of power. Put people in power who love you. Would we say, and now, Lord, protect the church from persecution. Gird up your people. Put a hedge of protection around them. Or, and now, Lord, send us to a city where the officials are a little bit more lenient and open to the gospel message. By the way, none of those requests are bad requests. Later on in the book of Acts, the church will pray requests just like that. But remember what we said earlier. This church has one collective heartbeat. One collective heartbeat. The fame of Jesus Christ. And almost from the beginning, there's an accepted understanding that this church will experience a similar journey that Jesus experienced. Persecution is on the docket for them because they see that that's the most effective means of accomplishing the proclamation. Aaron told us last week, persecution is very often the vehicle for gospel advance. Persecution very often precedes the most widespread conversion. So the church spends three quarters of their prayer invoking this bigger, trustworthy, sovereign God. And so now they can embrace whatever trial God sends their way because they know he's going to force it for good. Now they can pray the right way. They've embraced the hardship. Now they, listen, when the hardship piece is out of the way, we're accepted our circumstances, you can really get some praying done. We spend so much of our time, don't we, trying to get out of the problem that we only ever really pray for ourselves? This frees us, friends, to pray for other things. Pray for other people. Pray for other people in the church when we embrace hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. So they do that, and they make essentially two requests. First, they pray for the church. And they ask God to enable them to speak the word boldly in Jesus' name. Verse 29, Lord, look on their threats, grants to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, what do they mean, look upon their threats? What does that mean? Well, what were the religious leaders' threats? Remember back to verse 17 and 18. That in order that that may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called him and they charge him not to speak or teach in 
the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is a threat to them. Jesus' name is a threat to the authorities. It's, it's polarizing. It is, it is offensive. And it's offensive now. And it's because his name is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. It is the only name that has the power to disable the principalities and powers that we can't see, but that hold sway over this world. And so when the church goes about speaking and preaching in Jesus' name, they do so under his authority, and his authority will confront so-called earthly authorities. And so people with power, as Aaron, again, showed us last week, man, wasn't that a good sermon, guys? That just set this up. He's always just setting me up. People with power don't like their power to be threatened. You go about telling people that Jesus is God and that he's the only way to God, get ready for some backlash. You're going to shake up someone's religious system. You're going to cause their foundation to start to crack when you say Jesus is the only way to God. Friends, I can't think of a more time, a worse time than the state of the church right now. We are so afraid, and there's no persecution. Here, not like my brother, our brothers and sisters in other places. We need courage. We need boldness. But listen, when, when, when we go to this bigger, trustworthy, sovereign God and we ask for boldness to speak to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, that pleases God. And that's a prayer God is pleased to answer. So they ask for boldness. Second, they ask for God to work wonders through Jesus' name. Look at verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, in Acts, the book of Acts, signs and wonders to that degree were mainly worked by the apostles, but there is a smattering of others. By the time the church of Galatia came along and the church of Corinth came along, Miracles were the norm. Now think about how kingdom-minded this request is. Think about how unselfish this request is. They want God to continue to do through Jesus what Jesus began when he was on, in his earthly ministry. And that's heal. Heal the sick. Heal the lame. Make people whole. They want God, as, as Tim Keller has said, to bring about the restoration of the natural order, the world as God intended it to be. Why? Because if he does, then more and more people will see that Jesus really is the Lord. Friends, the purpose of miracles in the New Testament is never to produce awe and wonder simply for the sake of entertainment's sake. Never once when a miracle happens in the New Testament worked by the church, is it done so that people will pull out their popcorn and sit back and just be thrilled? No. It's always 
to draw attention to and to validate the power of the risen Christ and to show Christ's intent to fully restore and save the lost. That's what Peter did when he stood up twice now to preach after they healed the lame man. It was to draw attention to the risen Jesus. And that's why it grieves me personally when I see the two errant ends of the spectrum when it comes to the subject of miracles. On the one side, you have those who go around claiming to be healers and packing arenas and using Jesus' name like a magical incantation so they can fill their pockets with cash. That is an abomination. That is a mockery of the name of Jesus. And that grieves me. But it equally grieves me on the opposite side when someone reads a book like the New Testament, a passage like this in Acts or any place in the New Testament, and, and they say, well, that was for back then. That was for back then. During the apostles' lifetime, it eventually faded away. And yet, the doctrine of creation and inspiration and providence all prove that God is yet still, miraculously, involved in the affairs of men? Just because a few people abuse Christ's authority for selfish gain, is God not able and willing to work wonders through his son's name in the church now? Friends, are we less in need, less in need of the affirmation of the gospel than the church in the early first century was today? It seems to me that the church today Learn how to make supplication like this. Asking God for the boldness to faithfully speak his word. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to work wonders that only Jesus himself can do. We'd see a lot more conversions and a lot more baptisms and a lot more revival. That was their experience. Look at verse 31 again. When they prayed... The place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Big, Godward, scripturally faithful, kingdom-minded prayer led to God's response. And the building was so filled with the glory of God that it shook spontaneously. And the church was so filled with the Holy Spirit that they spoke courageously. Is your God big enough to handle this text? John Newton famously wrote, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For one can never, his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. I suppose there's only two questions for us as I close. And by the way, I, you're free to disagree with that last part. There's enough people who do. I've heard all the arguments. It's fine. But let's ask these two questions. Do we share each other's threats? Do we rejoice with those who rejoice at Grace City 
and weep with those who weep. Two, does our view of God enable us to pray like this? Do we share each other's threats? And does our view of God enable us to pray like this? If, if we do, we will get together to raise our voices to him. The most natural place is missional community, but you don't have to just do it there. Where any two or three are gathered, it could be a mom with kids taking a nap and another mom. So will we? How, how, how is your prayer life? Has your prayer life felt dry and ineffective as of late? Confession. I often feel that way. I often feel like my prayers are stale. And, and until I began to study this text this week very deeply, I guess I didn't see that so often my prayers are dry because I spend so much time talking to God rather than looking at God. And when we spend more time talking to God, we're going to nervously flip from channel to channel until we find something that fits. And all the while, we should have been looking at him. The saints in the Old Testament understood this. King Hezekiah understood this. King Jehoshaphat understood this. When they were threatened with enemies, they spread out their request to God. But they said, Lord, we don't know what to do. So our eyes are on you. Let me close with a quote from Orlando Sayer. He wrote a book called Big God. Listen to what he says. God turns his plans into reality by listening to and responding to our prayers. He's a big God. So big that he can take our requests to him and his responses to them and weave them into the plan he has always had for the world. This is the way that God has set up the world. He's committed himself to acting as he hears his people praying. The sooner we get this, the better, because we'll realize God's overarching plan will is not a disincentive to prayer, but an enormous motivation. We don't just pray because we can, although should, that should be enough reason for us. We pray because our prayers lead to God working. So will you pray? How many channels do you have, church? We need only one. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, we can never ask too much. Amen.